I don't know if you've gone to any class reunions. And there's some people who just don't ever bother to go to a class reunion and the like because it's like, eh, no, I don't want to see any of those people again and whatever. But for those of you that go to class reunions and the like, uh, you've had uh, the anticipation of showing up there and going, I wonder what so-and-so's like, and I haven't seen so-and-so in 25 50 years, uh, I haven't seen them. I, I wonder how they're doing. Uh, I haven't seen them. And there's some individuals that you get together with and uh, it's like nothing's, you know, time has not passed in between. You get together with them and you're, you know, immediately starting the same line of conversation, the jokes, whatever. I mean, it just, it's, it's normal. I mean, I had this experience a couple weeks ago. I had a friend that I hadn't seen in 10 years that I went to high school and college with and uh, they were coming through town and uh, we met for a meal and talked for three hours as if you know, nothing had gone on in between. Uh, you have those type of individuals that are like that. And then there's some others that you perhaps are classmates with and uh, you get there and you're like, who is that? I, I don't even recognize them. And they're thinking the same thing about you because they don't recognize you because you've changed too. But, uh, but you get together with them and there's just kind of you know, the friendly finding out what's gone in life, where you've been. But there may be those individuals that the last time that you saw them, you had angry words with them, or you were just, you know, enemies at school and whatever, and you're thinking, I wonder if they're going to be at that class reunion. And uh, many times what you find is that uh, the years uh, sometimes break down the animosity, and then you, you've kind of already come to the conclusion that some of the petty things that you may have fought in over high school were really petty. Uh, and uh, it really shouldn't have been that way. We have a reunion in Genesis chapter 33. And we have to remember the background on this. is The last thing, and looking back at Genesis chapter 27, you don't have to turn there, but the last thing that was said between these brothers, Esau said, I'm going to kill you when dad dies. That was, that was the last conversation, and the reason that Jacob got shifted off 500 miles away was because his parents were concerned that Esau would kill him. That they were frightened by the prospect of this brother-on-brother -brother, uh, murder that would take place because Esau was so angry at Jacob because Jacob had stolen both the birthright, which means that he had the right to lead the family, got a double portion of the inheritance. He got all of these things. Esau sold this off to Jacob, but he also got the blessing, which means there is that the father of a family has a right to give a blessing, a thing beyond what normally would be given, and give this to the son. And Jacob had stolen that from Esau. He deceived his father. And Esau was angry. He was going to kill his brother. And being a wild man, as he was described, I mean, that's how he's described. You go, wild man. He's an individual who has got uh, adventure and he's enjoying being out in the wilderness and the like. He's kind of an adventuresome individual, but he's like a wild animal. That's the kind of the way you would describe him. This is the last thing that Jacob had heard and he went away for 20 years. No communication. You know, it's not you could just send a line to somebody or, you know, uh, that type of thing. Uh, there's no communication. And Jacob does not have any information as to what is going on uh, back home. Uh, when he comes back from being 20 years, he gets 
married to two individuals, has uh, 12 different children, 11 sons, one daughter that we know of, and he's been increased in property. He goes there with just a staff in his hand, and when he comes back 20 years later, uh, he has all sorts of flocks of different animals making him a very wealthy man in that culture. God had changed him from this individual fleeing with the clothes on his back and the staff in the hand, and now he's coming back with this large... uh, basically company of people and animals moving back to this country but he doesn't know what's going on and the last just the the as we read last week and went through this passage there's one piece of information that's given to him because he does send out some messengers to kind of feel out what's going on with esau and they go and find esau and tell them that jacob's coming and when they come back to jacob they go Esau's coming, but he's bringing 400 men with him. And the terminology there describes what a person would do if they were going off to war. They would gather individuals with them. And so Jacob is just, it has in his mind, I'm about to face Esau. Esau is going to carry out what he'd said 20 years ago. But in the midst of all of this, and we looked at this last week, Jacob wrestled with God. He got everything arranged to meet Esau as best he could, uh, knowing that there might be difficulty, and he's going to try and slow his brother down with gifts and the like before his brother even shows up there. And he wrestles with God to the point that he is broken. They wrestle all night, and and, uh, he doesn't prevail with this person that he's wrestling with, but he suddenly comes to realize that he's uh, dealing with an individual that is uh, divine because when his, uh, his hip is touched, the hip goes immediately out of joint. One of the strongest uh, connections in the body, it's suddenly out of place just by the touch of this individual. And he realizes this is not just a man, this is God. And he clings to God and he will not let go. And he clings and he says, you must give me a blessing. And what God does is that he changes his name. Jacob's name, if you're not familiar with this, just means simply this, deceiver. Or we might say cheat. Manipulative. All those words would work with that name Jacob. That's what it meant in the Hebrew. And God says, I'm going to change your name. Because you've been broken by my grace. You're now no longer manipulating circumstances. You're now just clinging desperately. And what I'm going to call you now is Israel. That's your new name. You are now Israel, which means one who has the idea that is a prince with God or has had victory with God. God's given him something that he doesn't deserve. And that point, Jacob is a completely changed individual you've seen 20 years where he's he's kind of gone and talked about god that was different than when he was uh with esau he wasn't talking about god but you kind of see that but at this point he's completely changed and you say how do you know that and it's this is that when this meeting takes place he isn't arranging everybody in front of him to meet esau before he eventually meets esau we find in this story, as we read this morning in Genesis 33 and verse 4, or 3, he says this, He passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. He goes out in front. He's not manipulating the circumstances anymore. He just goes out and boldly meets his brother. 
And what you have in this passage, and it's what we're going to just kind of emphasize in the few minutes that we have, is just simply this. That God's grace can reconcile avowed enemies. God's grace can reconcile you. What's that mean? Make peace between avowed enemies. See, God told uh, Jacob that he would bring him back to this land. That was the promise 20 years before when Jacob saw the ladder, the staircase, the angels going up and down. God promised him this, I'll take you out of this land and I'll bring you back. And I'll bring you back here safely. And God told Jacob that. Jacob is returning by the command of God. God told him, you need to go back now. There's 20 years. He's come back. He's escaped his manipulative father-in-law, Laban. And he's now come to Esau. And Esau is the last uh, conversation. I'm going to kill you. But he's a changed man. But it's by the grace of God that he's doing this. But Jacob doesn't know what's happened in Esau's life. He doesn't know what's going on in the background in Esau's life. And what we have here, as we read through it this morning, is just a story of reconciliation. Two sides opposed to one another that God works out that they're no longer in opposition and fighting one another. They're actually acting like brothers. Something you couldn't have imagined. You have this story, and we're not going to go into every detail of it, but as you read through this morning, you find out that he does arrange the family uh, in a certain way for Esau to meet the family, but he just goes out front. He realizes, I'm the one that Esau is here to meet, and I want him to meet me first before he meets everybody else. And he comes, and as you, we read in verse 3, he bows himself seven times. You go, what is he doing there? Why is he bowing seven times? Well, this would have been very common uh, back in that culture. When you came into the court of a king, you didn't bow just once. You would bow seven times. You would give the reverence due to the other individual and give uh, honor to them. And as Jacob approaches his brother, not knowing what his brother's going to do, we have no clue. We do because we've read through our Bible, some of us. But to this point, we have no clues to how Esau is going to respond. So Jacob's coming in, and he is bowing and giving reverence to his brother, honor to his brother. And you get to verse 4, and the whole tension's over with. It says this, that Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. You know, the rest of the story is not even worth going through in one way because you know what happens. The brothers are reconciled to one another. They give a hug, they give a kiss, which would have been a sign back then of peace between one another. And this whole situation, you find that Esau does this without any visible working of God. Because remember, the, it just two stories or two chapters before this, Laban is going back after Jacob when he leaves. And he says, I'm going to get my stuff back and I'm going to get my daughters back and I'm going to get all this back. And God has to step in in the middle of the night and say, you don't do anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Don't say anything against him. Don't carry anything out against him. And God forcibly has to do this. In this situation... 
God has done something in the heart of this wild individual who said, I'm going to kill you. God did a work behind the scenes in this man's life to change him so that he could be reconciled to his brother. This is not to say that Esau is a a God-fearing man. There doesn't seem to be much indicator in his life that he is really a God-fearing individual, a person who has real faith in God. But in this meeting, this time, what you have is Jacob is going, God's going to take care of this, and Esau is a wild man, and unexpectedly Esau is as soft and kind and tender as any person you can possibly imagine when he meets his brother and gives him this hug. One put it this way, God had so turned Esau's heart that he was eager to be reconciled to his brother. He cared nothing for the birthright, for ever since Jacob had left, he had enjoyed a full and productive life under God's blessing. Esau was gracious, but you see, Jacob is still kind of figuring out, is this really true? What has gone on here? You see this gift that Jacob is trying to give of flocks and and, uh, animals, and, and Esau is just kind of going, who is everybody here? You know, all these people come up as part of this crowd. He doesn't know who the family is. He doesn't know who the children are. He doesn't know who's working there. Where did all these, where did all these animals come from? Because when Jacob left, he had nothing. And Jacob is trying to give a gift to Esau to try and reconcile from his side. Well, God's already taken care of it, but from a human perspective, he's just trying to go, I want to make sure everything is right with Esau. When I took the birthright from him, when I took the blessing from them, I took good things from him by deceit, by cheating, by being manipulative. And so he kind of presses this gift upon Esau. And you see in verse number 8, Esau goes, What meanest thou by this drove which I met? Why are you giving me the, you know, bringing these animals to me? And the response is this, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord, in the sight of you. I want you to take this gift and, and find favor for me that I'm, I'm doing good to you. Ironically, when you get down to verse number 11, he calls the gift, Jacob says this, take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee. This is ironic. Because Jacob last seen with Esau, had stolen the blessing from Esau. He had taken it away. He'd taken the good thing that the father would proclaim for Esau, and he stole it away from him. Uh, And here Jacob goes, take the blessing that I have. I mean, Jacob was one whom God said to him, through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, and you'll be a blessing to the nations. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. He is going to be a blessing to the nations. And you kind of see this with his brother. He says, I've enjoyed God's blessing. And what I'm going to do is give you a blessing that I stole away from you. He's trying to make restitution as part of this reconciliation with his brother. And you find that the brother finally, in the end of verse 11, he urged him and he took it. He takes the gift. Part of what we read this morning gets a little confusing because there's this separation where it seems like uh, Esau says, well, come and go with me and I'll help you get to where you're going and you can stay with me. 
At this time, Esau is living in a place called Seir. It's on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. It's in that region of the map of Israel. And he says, you can go back with me. And you find that Jacob kind of responds to him and he says this, verse 14, let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before a servant. I will lead on softly according as the cattle goeth before me and the children endure until I come unto my Lord and Seir. It sounds like he's going to go, okay, you know what? You're here. I'm going to go back with you to where you live. But then you get to verse number 16. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Verse 17, Jacob journeyed to the Succoth. They go in opposite directions. And people go, is Jacob being a deceiver again? In the wording of what goes on here, there is this kind of, hey, I'll take care of you and I'll, I'll take you to where I'm at. You've had people do this before. Hey, I'll take care of this and this for you. If you need it, if you want it, it's available to you. And Jacob goes, well, you know, I'm, I, you know what? I might take you up on that. But what Jacob does, he doesn't take him up on this. But what you have is that they go their separate ways, but they're at peace with one another. The only other time you're going to find these brothers come together, they get together for a peaceful occasion at their father's funeral when they eventually have to bury Isaac. Now, you look at the story and you go, this is something that should never have happened from a human perspective. One brother stealing from the other brother, taking the blessing and birthright and the rights of inheritance from his brother, leadership responsibilities. He's taken this and then they come together and there is a unity and a peace and a calm. And you go, how is that even possible? It's because of God. God can take individuals who are irreconcilable towards one another and bring them together in peace jacob seems to to understand this because when he gets done with esau he gets into the land he sets up and it talks about this place in Sukkoth. you say what's that he builds a whole bunch of different things uh, to house his animals and the idea is, is he's got all sorts of stuff that the Lord said, I'm going to bless you and take care of you. And here's this visual building of buildings to say, yes, God's taken care of me. I have to house these things. Can't just get them in tents. I have to have some sort of structures to, to take care of them. And then when Jacob gets to the city of Shechem, and you kind of run right over this, and it ends the story as we read in the, the story this morning, that he builds an altar in Shechem, and he names the altar El Elohe Israel. God, the God of Israel. He places, and you find this throughout the book of Genesis, you read through Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. They put a visible representation in the middle of this land that doesn't know God. They don't know who he is. They have their own gods that they've made up, that they worship. And here in the middle, which is Shechem, is right in the middle of the map of the nation of Israel. He's now living there, and he puts up this altar, and he says, I have a God who is my God, who has done great things. He's worthy of worship, and he puts this altar right in the land, and he worships God and says, this God is worthy of praise. You say, why? Because he's gotten, well, 20 years, nothing, comes back full has a family. God took care of the situation with Laban. 
God took care of the situation with Esau. And now he's back to where God said, I'll bring you back to this land. And he says, this is a God that's worthy of our praise because he's capable of doing things that nobody else could imagine. Now you say, what is that uh, as far as uh, how do we apply that to our situation in this? Well, understand that the Bible has a lot to say about reconciliation and what God does in this. And I want us to look at two passages and we'll be done. I want us to, first of all, if you can uh, find this in the New Testament, I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we said the theme of this message this morning is just simply this, that God's grace can reconcile, reconcile avowed enemies, enemies that will never get together, that God can do this. In 2 Corinthians, you find this uh, in chapter 5, that God is the one who accomplishes reconciliation for sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as you read the passage there, starting in verse number six or 16, excuse me, it says this, Wherefore, uh, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we know him more, no more. So basically, he's saying we don't see Christ anymore because he's what? He's gone back to heaven. Verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You go, well, what is he talking about there? Well, realize this, that the whole of the story of the Bible is this. It starts off in Genesis chapter 3, where mankind is fellowshipping with God. It's able to walk with God and talk with Him in the cool of the evening as you read the story there in the Garden of Eden. But all of a sudden, mankind has one rule, and they decide to break it. They decide to change the, 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 their perspective of God and say that God's not a good God. He's a mean God. He's holding stuff back from us. And they go and eat of the fruit that they're not supposed to. The rest of the Old Testament is a story of individuals who are at war with God, that, that won't get right with God, though some do. But it's time and time again, individuals running from God... Isaiah makes very clear, the prophet there, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What does that mean? We go our own directions because we don't like the path God's led. We've got a better path. You read through the Old Testament and you've got individuals there that should know who God is and they're creating idols and going, well, this is what we think God should be like and we're going to worship this. And over and over again and you go these people are irreconcilable to god they are never going to come back to god they've chosen their own way they've hardened their heart and gone different directions than what god says there's no hope for that and you go there is because in the history of mankind what you have starting in the book of matthew you have an individual who is the son of god jesus christ who comes into this world and his goal is this, is to bring mankind back into a relationship with God, not enemies, but ones who are united in fellowship with one another. That's the plan. And when Jesus comes into this world, you find in Romans chapter 5, it says this, in that while we were yet sinners, we were enemies of God, running from Him, doing our own thing. We don't need Him. It says this, that Christ died for us. 
And what God did is that He was able to take two sides, us and God, people going in opposite directions, and through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, was able to reconcile and bring two opponents of one another, if you would say that, and bring peace in that relationship that you're going, this is incredible. I mean, the statement is made in this passage, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. What happens to a person when they get saved? It's transformationally going, a person that's like that suddenly is like this? You know, what happened here? God, in His grace, sent His Son to be able to reconcile two sides that were at war with one another and bring them together. And so you just say, this is incredible that God was able to do an idea is a picture of two individuals that hated each other in Genesis, bring Esau and Jacob together. Well, it's even more incredible that God can take sinners who have chosen to go their own way and bring them into a right relationship with God. That's the working of God. That's a greater miracle than any miracle that happened that God can take people opposed to God and bring them into right fellowship with him. In this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 19, it says this, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We don't have sins on our account anymore. Jesus Christ died, and we had committed all sorts of offenses and atrocities towards God, but Christ took our punishment, and in the eyes of God, he does not see us and our sins because of what he's done in reconciliation. Now, the Scripture makes clear there in verse 20, we are now ambassadors. We're representatives for Christ. And so God did beseech us by you. We pray you, and God said, be reconciled to God. Uh, What he then says is this, if you've experienced God's grace, that he's brought you to himself through his Son, that he's reconciled you, and that you're at peace with God, you can fellowship with him, you ought to go and represent that to others and preach that to others. It ought to be displayed in your life. And, and it, it, I, you say, how is it displayed in my life? Why don't you turn to one other passage where it says uh, you have this understanding that God expects uh, us as his followers to be reconciled to others. You say, what passage is that? Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. There you have a passage of Scripture that's in the middle of a passage known as the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount was basically preaching a message. You start off with the Beatitudes. He says, you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? This is what you need to be. You need to be poor in spirit. You need to mourn over sins. You need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not your own. But once you're a part of that kingdom, when you come and accept uh, what God has there and that you have chosen the righteousness not your own in Jesus Christ, then you start acting like you're a part of that kingdom. And Matthew 5, from that point on, is basically saying, here's what people who are followers of Christ, are part of his kingdom, ought to look like. And in one of those passages you have in Matthew chapter 5, and, and verse number 21 this statement where the Lord's teaching, he just says this, ye have heard that it was said of them in old time, thou shalt not kill. You go, that's accurate. You know, you can go to the Old Testament, read the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. That's an accurate statement that the Lord is making about what people are saying. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Okay, that's accurate. 
But Jesus says, I want you to understand that murder is not just merely taking a knife and stabbing somebody else and taking the physical life from them. It's a thought process that starts off this way, verse number 22, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, raka, or we might say in our terminology, blockhead, I mean, that's really what it means. It means it's the idea that you're, you're calling him this. You call him Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So basically, it's, he's talking about this. Words that we say to go to war with one another. We fight and argue with people, and we say stuff like this. And we put a distance between us and other individuals. We do this all the time. You go, why? Even though we may be saved... And reconciled to God, we still have a sin nature. And that sin nature shows itself often in our lives. And we can oftentimes act like this where we're murdering others in words, tearing them up as, as best we can. And the Lord says this, okay, here's, here's the solution for this. If you want to show what God is like who reconciles sinners to himself, you need to display this. And look at verse number 24, or excuse me, 23. It says this, Therefore, if thou bring thy, thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother has aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar. Go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come offer thy gift. In that culture, you're coming to the temple, you're worshiping God, and all of a sudden you remember, oh, there's that person that I just last night tore to shreds as far as my comments about them. And they've got bitter feelings towards uh, me, and I'm not happy with them. You know what the Lord says? I'd rather you not be in the worship service. I'd rather you just drop the stuff there, go find that individual, and make reconciliation or peace with them. You say, well, how does that work out? How, how do you, you know, get reconciled to someone you've offended? It may be that you come and apologize, confess your own sin on your side. You can't confess the other person's sin. I mean, they have to do that towards God. But you confess your sin, apologize, and it may be that you even need to bring a gift to them. Reconcile. They say, well, they may not respond the best. They may not uh, even respond at all. But the responsibility of you is to be the one who goes and attempts to bring peace. Because that's what God did. God attempted to bring peace to us. He gave us Jesus Christ. And there are many that reject that gift, but you still go ahead and attempt to reconcile individuals, bring peace to a situation. So the Lord says here, you as my representatives, people that are part of the kingdom, in this life, you may have occasions where you have to go to somebody that you've offended or they've offended you. And you need to be the one who is the one to willing to start the peace to be the peace it goes on to say there in verse 25 of the passage there in matthew agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver the officer and you be cast into prison it may be that you have done something offensive enough that they can take you to court he says it's better for you to take care of it early 
That's what he's saying. Take care of it early. Don't delay in this. Do it early and restore this one this way. And so for us, as we look at Jacob in this situation, going back to the story of Jacob, when we kind of go, why is he going to his brother and attempting to offer a gift and the like? What he's doing is he's simply confessing the fact that he had done something wrong. He himself is seeking to make restitution for the situation. But the amazing thing is, is behind the scenes, God was already doing work. And I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, and I don't know who you've offended or you might have been offended by. But the fact is, is you have the responsibility, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you know him as your personal savior to reflect what he's like. He's the reconciliation. We ought to be doing the same. And it may be that you just need to go to somebody else and go, I said these things, and I know that you're not happy with that, and I am sorry. That wasn't right. It was not good. Didn't reflect who I am and what Christ has done in changing my life. And I just want to simply say this. I was wrong. Is there anything I can do? to make amends for this, to fix this uh, situation. And you do that. You say, well, you don't know the person that I'm going to have to do that for. As we said, when Jesus Christ came into the world to be offered as a gift of reconciliation, many people rejected that gift, but God still offered it. And so for us, it may be that we have to do the very same thing. We go and apologize. We confess our sins. Say, is there any restitution that can be made or uh, anything I can do? And if you're going and doing this because you're a child of God, you'll be amazed sometimes that God's already prepared the path behind the scenes. That God is going to take that individual and soften their hearts like he did with Esau. That God will do that and you suddenly have a relationship with an individual. In many cases, oftentimes, they're, they're individuals that don't even know Christ. And so you've restored the opportunity to be able to share Christ with an individual like that. To display Christ to an individual like that. That's a great opportunity. But we bear the responsibility to reconcile ourselves to others. You go, why? Because God was willing to go out of His way to make reconciliation through His Son and offer us peace. And so we have an example here of Jacob and Esau, but it's a reminder to us as New Testament believers, we have the same kind of responsibility to reconcile ourselves to those we may have offended as a reflection of the God who reconciled us through His Son. And so may we do that, be willing to do that because it is a testimony and something that is our responsibility. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for the time this morning as we've uh, seen what you've been doing in the country of Cameroon as you've had individuals there who have run from you, gone their own way, do their own things, worship their own gods and spirits, and yet you're reconciling them to yourself through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. You did the same for us as individuals here, that we were individuals going our own way, doing our own thing, seeking after the things of this life, ignoring who you were, but yet you sent your Son into this world to be the peace, the treaty, to restore the relationship between us and you. We thank you for that. There, there was nothing we could have done to make peace with you on our end but you were able to do it through your son. And we thank you for that. Lord, there may be individuals here that as I just talk about this, there may be 
other men, other women that they know that they've offended or the relationship's not right there. Lord, may they recognize the fact that they have a responsibility to show reconciliation, to go to that brother or sister, that fellow co-worker, or somebody in the community that they've, they've offended and that they have a responsibility to go admit, confess that there was a failure, ask forgiveness, seek perhaps uh, if there is a need uh, to re make restitution, to repair some of the, the damage that may have been caused by the offense. But Lord, would you give grace? A, to a believer who's willing to try and make reconciliation with somebody they've offended. And B, that you would uh, display and a work of grace in the heart of individuals who have been offended. That you might be able to receive the praise. So Lord, we thank you for a passage like this. Uh, in the midst of daily living, we, we need to be reminded of this. And we thank you for your grace that was given to us. May we be willing to extend grace to others. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.